Tonight, if you will turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, I would like to talk to you for just a few minutes about the rich young man who came to Jesus and to just have a few thoughts that we might get from this portion, especially concerning salvation, what salvation is not, and then also dealing with the question of riches. For there are those who are rich in spirit, and there are those who are rich in possessions, but the riches of the one is not the riches of the other. And Jesus has much to say about this. I think sometimes people would rather he didn't say too much, but there's so much said about it, he has a lot to say about it. And, of course, Paul does in his epistles. James does also. But you find this theme is quite often used on riches. I think probably one of the greatest problems that man has is his money. It's been well said by others, not by me. I don't make any claim to setting up the phrase that merely speaks about riches and says that it wouldn't matter how wealthy a man gets if he has been a poor giver when he had little. He will be a poor giver when he has much. Psychiatrists say this too also. Generosity is not a thing or a matter of wealth. It's a matter of attitude toward the Lord Jesus. And so, uh, in this portion, uh, Jesus has some things here to say, beginning at the 17th verse. Uh, I'll read from this portion to you. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. In other words, if you're calling me good, then you will also have to acknowledge that I am God. And secondly here, he is indicting the man before he talks because he is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's called him good master. And then he says, but no one's good but God. He's saying to him right away, don't you understand? There's nothing you can do. There's no one good, you see. It's not possible. No one is good but God. So he's indicting the man immediately who's coming to him to find out how to get eternal life. And he immediately says, there's no one good but God. Remember that. That's the first thing. And so, as he goes on, he says, there's none good but one, 
that is God. I couldn't help but think of that verse uh, where it says, there is none righteous, no, not one, you see. So that he brings the thing together. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's only one righteous, and that is God, you see. There's only one holy. Jesus Christ is the holy one. Jesus Christ is the sinless one. So that right away he's telling this young man that he must understand that there's only one good, and that is God. He has said, how, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His first thing he says to him is this, there's none good but God. So to say, if he gets this, he'll understand that there's something else that must be done. It's not a matter of doing something for God or having a list of things that you must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. What must I do, he said, to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And I couldn't help but think here that there is, in a sense, a uh, certain innocency in this young man's reply. Uh, he's taking the things here. You notice the word here, thou shalt not covet, is not included. Because if this were included, this indicts all mankind, of course, puts us under complete conviction. The minute we take the tenth, remember this was Paul's whole treatise on the law. Paul said, concerning the law, I am blameless. And then he says, for I had not known sin except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Paul said, I looked at the law concerning murder, stealing, all these very evident sins. And these I had counted on my fingers and thought, well, I don't do those. But I had never noticed the tenth where it says, thou shalt not covet. And suddenly I understood that it included my desire life. And the fact that I desired something sinful indicated I had a sinful nature which could do all of the previous forbidding things. It was possible for me to do all of those things. And the very fact that covet was there, Paul says, I had not known sin except the law had said thou shalt not covet. And I knew it covered my whole desire life. It's your eye. It's in the secrets of our hearts. It's the things we may have ever thought. It's the desires we may have ever entertained. It's anything that is sinful, that which comes into the heart day by day by day. And Paul puts clearly in the word that these are the things. The imaginations of the heart are only evil, God says, continually. Isn't the imagination a terrible thing? You have so little control over it. 
Did you ever think of that? The, the lack of control you have over imagination. And in fact, you rather welcome some imaginations in, even though you know that it may defile you. You may invite them in, and you may meditate upon them. This is the, the whole key of Thomas Akempis when he writes, when he says that sin is an imagination which flashes through the mind. And he says we do not pass through the mind, but we grasp it and we hang its pictures on the wall of the mind and we meditate upon it and it drips its sweet honey down into the soul and we are consumed by thereby and we sin. And all know this by experience. There's not one soul here, I don't think any are too young to understand what I mean, that you have gripped imaginations and have meditated upon them, and they have dripped their sweet honey into the soul. And so Paul puts it clearly that it is the imaginative life. And so here when he says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, don't kill, do not steal, Jesus says, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said to him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we look into thy word, thou wilt bless it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we will cull from it something that may speak to us about our own lives, that there may be some precious thoughts from Scripture that will sink deep into our souls. Bless thy word to our hearts this night. In Christ's name, amen. Now, it struck me here that it says that the big thing that Jesus said is after all of this, here is a rich man. Here is he who has much possessions. I think you could test yourself like this morning. I said, now here's a test for your faith. Here's a test for your faith tonight. If Christ came to you and said, sell all that you have and give it to the poor that you might have riches in heaven, and you actually felt the word of God dealing with your soul, would you do as he did if you had much possessions? Or would you have said, Lord, here is all I possess. Take it. I venture that if you're thinking of this very seriously, you're wondering whether you could because this is a great demand upon the human heart, you see. The amazing thing is here that once more, I believe, Jesus would have done exactly as God did with Abraham and Isaac. 
I believe that just as Abraham was told to bring his son up and to sacrifice him on the altar, just as he did that, and at the last moment, God says, all right, Abraham, I see that you're obedient to me. That's all I wanted to know. That it was the attitude of Abraham's heart of faith. No matter what God did, it says he knew that God could restore his son to him if he wanted. That Abraham had not one iota of doubt. And that is exactly, I believe, what he wanted here. He wanted this man to say to him, here, here's all that I have. I'll sell it for the poor. I'll do anything. All I want is to follow thee. I'll take up the cross and follow thee. That's all he wanted. He wanted that expression of faith. He wanted that attitude. But you see, the man was grieved. He couldn't take it. The very thought of giving up was so important to him of giving up his money and his possessions. And I think here is a place that we have to be so careful. May I say this? Our possessions are a peculiar thing. In the long run, it comes down to this. It's a matter of whether you shall leave this much money when you die or that much money when you die. May I say that frankly? That's a matter of your possessions. But it is a matter of how much you leave. You keep them, you don't use them. And when you die, it's a matter of whether you leave $5,000 or $10,000. That's all. That's it. How much did he leave when he died? That's actually the, the truth of the whole matter, isn't it? A man has investments, they're all on paper. He watches the going up and the going down of the stock market day by day. He's sick when it goes down. It's all on paper. He's elated when it goes up. And yet this isn't the final balances at all. You'd think that today was it, the market's down. Despondency. You get on the Long Island at night and watch the men opening the paper, reading the stock market. Watch their faces. Booming day. Everybody's joyous. Sad day, everybody's depressed. Go to sleep. But in the long run, it's really only a matter of how much you're going to leave when you die. You're not going to use it. You just enjoy it. Without saying we're gamblers, Anybody who reads the, what's the difference whether you read the Wall Street Journal or the figures every day for profits and losses or whether you take the green sheet and betting and do the same thing? No difference. Don't kid yourself. If you're speculating, I'm talking of speculating. Speculating is gambling. I'm not talking of investment. I'm talking of speculation. I'm talking of the purchase for quick profits. Can you tell me what the difference is between purchase for quick profits in stocks or placing $2 in the paramutuals on a horse 
and hoping you get quick profits? Tell me the difference. There's none. There's none. A little hard to invest in a horse. God is making sure that we understand that our attitude toward money is what counts. This man's attitude toward money was wrong. He was willing to do anything. Lord, I'd follow you, I'll do anything. But when he was hit at that point where he had the most possessions, what was he saying when he said he walked away grieved? He was saying, I'll trust you for eternal life, but I can't trust you to take care of me now. That's what he was saying. Isn't this exactly the same thing that Jesus does when he says, see the lilies of the field? They neither spin nor work nor sow. Yet Solomon in all his glory had no such beauty as these. Are ye not more important than lilies? And will not your heavenly Father be able to take care of you? What does he say then? Therefore, take no thought for what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, what ye shall wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God what, and his righteousness, and all these things, incidentally, I underlined these things in my Bible because it didn't include Cadillacs, and it didn't include all of the rich cars. It didn't, I'm sorry, I know some of you have Cadillacs. That's, but it didn't include all of the great riches. God never guaranteed any luxuries, beloved. I would remind you of that. He never guaranteed any luxuries. God wants us to understand, I'll take care of you if you seek first the kingdom of God, whatsoever ye eat, whatsoever ye drink, whatsoever ye wear, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things and he will undertake for you. Now, this is a very important attitude and it is an attitude, let me say, that Christians find hard to take. That's why this rich young man had it hard to take. Very hard to take. Notice what Jesus says now. The man has gone away. Now he turns to his disciples. Jesus looked round about and he said to his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter in to the kingdom of God? Exclamation point. And the disciples were astonished at his words. This is amazing. I, I, I don't like to say this, but these, you must remember, all of the disciples were Jewish converts. Put them in the place they belong, you see. They're Jewish converts. Remember, the Jewish economy had always preached that riches were a sign of God's blessing. Abraham was rich. Every Jew that was rich was blessed of God. Jews today believe that the sign of God's blessing is the fact that they have money. 
You watch the Jewish community. Do you think the Christian community is anything like the Jewish community about business? You watch the little tradesmen, if you do, in your neighborhood. Show me a row of Jewish stores, the haberdasher, the stationery store. All the stationery stores practically are Jewish. 95% of all clothing sold in New York comes through the Jews. They're the merchants of the earth. God said so. I will make you the merchants of the earth. They're the merchants of the earth. But look at their little row of stores. Here they are, the druggist, each one. And here's one, and he's beginning to fail. Now, the Gentiles and the Christians, they let him fail. But do you know what the Jewish men do? The four successful Jewish men get together and make sure that the one Jewish merchant doesn't fail. You see? Why? Because riches are a sign of God's blessing. Here are the disciples. He turns to them and he says, hardly is it possible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were astonished. Well, you wouldn't expect it really, would you? You'd think by this time they'd grown a little bit, but they're astonished. And then Jesus repeats it, says, but Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? May I say this very clearly? No man should die rich. No man should die rich. James puts it well. I, I don't think we'll ever get away from his word. He says this, the rust of your riches shall be held as a witness against you at the judgment seat. All James is saying, you had your large bank accounts. You counted your bank books, maximum each account so much. Here are the bank books. Nice, look at this, look at this, look at this. All the bank books, guaranteed Federal Reserve Board. Nothing to worry about. What does it sound like? It sounds like the rich man who piled it into his bonds. And God said, what did he call him? Tell me what he called him. Thou fool. This night shall thy soul be required of thee. Now, beloved, I'm not speaking of the normal provisions for your family. I'm speaking of the excessive storing up of riches that will only be seen when you die. And it will be a matter of how much you leave. So you see how simply Jesus puts it. Why does Jesus say it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? It's very, very difficult. And it's a very, very simple thing. It's an impossibility practically, he says. With God, he says, all things are possible. I might say there are some rich who aren't really rich. I think of Steamtown. And our brother who was killed in an airplane accident, you know. And how he said, when I was a working man, 
Nelson Blount. When I was a working man, he said, I bought my home. I paid $10,000 for that house. He said, it's a lovely home. He said, I've made millions since. He said, I could have bought a palace, but I still live in my $10,000 home, and God gets 95% of all I make. <laughs> man, that's a kind of giving, isn't it? Huh? You know, I can't imagine the joy he had in his heart. Could you? Can you think, isn't it marvelous, brother, to think of living on 5% of your income? Hmm? What a thrill. What a, but let me say something. Let me say something. God can't trust many men with that kind of riches. Why do you think there are not too many very rich Christians? Because there are very few who'd share it with God. You'll note when I pray, and I pray at the offering time, and I pray for those who may have needs, and I'll say this in my prayer, and Lord, bless those who may have temporal needs that they may bless thee. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that. But I've never asked anybody to get any money from God unless they're going to share it with God. Absolutely valueless. Absolutely valueless. But to see how Jesus so clearly puts it here, and twice he has to tell his disciples, it's hard for a rich man to enter the king. It said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then it says in the 26th verse again, and they were astonished out of measure. I want to say this would make the Jewish mind flip. Yeah. They're the merchants of the earth. No one can take that from them. God said so. They're the merchants of the earth. But to say that it would be difficult, and these, it isn't that these men are rich, but their Jewish brethren all around them have money and possessions. And here is Jesus bringing it down to what man's attitude is toward money. That's the tremendous thing. Paul says in Timothy, I believe it is, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money. Let me read it. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 12. Now notice how wonderfully, and you know, I could, I, there's so many verses on this that is tremendous. Boy, if I quoted you all of them, I'll never forget. Will you ever forget Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs> I want to say something. I think the church is loaded with Ananias and Sapphira's. And if God's condign judgment were to fall in this day of grace upon all who are Ananiases and Sapphiras, I don't know what had happened to the church. Because all Ananias and Sapphira did was sell a house and keep back a portion for themselves. Imagine the problems we'd have today. Huh? I don't think anybody ever thinks hardly anymore about when I sell the house, I've got to share it with God. He even says, Peter says, why, I even knew the price for which you sold, and you deprived God. 
and it says he fell down and God carried him out. That was it. The men carried him out. He was dead. Why? Because he had lied to God. Do you lie in your tithing? <laughs> let me tell you, Ananias and Sapphira, you might as well lay down and let them carry you out, brother. You can't fool with God. can't fool with God. Boy, I wouldn't try to fool God about my tithe. You know, some people want to know, can I get out all my expenses? One man said to me one time, I hate to say this, he's not here. He's gone. But one time he said to me, Pastor, I use shoes walking to church. Could I take them? You see how foolish we can become? Instead of saying, how much can I give? How much can I give? It's not a matter of seeing what is the minimum I can get away with, is it? It's what is the maximum I can give to God so the joy of my heart will be... Let me say this. No one has the joy of salvation who's not giving to God. You're living mediocrity as a Christian. If you let it flow out, God lets the joy flow in, not dollars. A lot of people think, you know, if you let it flow out, I hear that statement, you know, God has a bigger shovel than I do. I shovel it out and he shovels it in. Well, brethren, I want to say it doesn't always work that way. You can shovel it out and you can give your money to God, but I do want to say he'll shovel in joy. More blessed is he that gives than he that receives. So that this, this whole area here that Jesus speaks about, notice in that first uh, Timothy portion, it says there, godliness, sixth verse, godliness with contentment is great gain. Hey, isn't that great, huh? Godliness with contentment, isn't that wonderful? You've got to have a godly life. Contentment is the great gain, not money. I tell you, when God says be a cheerful giver, you know, he really means it. Because he knows that if you're a cheerful giver, you'll have lots of cheer. You'll have lots of cheer. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out and have food and raiment. Notice this now. Having food and raiment, what does it say? Read with me. Let us be there with content. Are you? Are you? Simple question. It's, bi it's a biblical question. Are you content with food and raiment? Or do you want a lot more? Boy, I want to say contentment is such a joy. Contentment with a family. Contentment with a wife or husband. Contentment with a simple home. Contentment that the house is at least warm. Just contentment. Contentment of heart. Contentment of mind. Contentment. Godliness and contentment are great, great gains. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. I tell you, 
When Christianity reaches this kind of level, you've got it. You've got it. And you know, you can really tell your attitude toward money tonight by your attitude toward what I'm saying. It's just as simple as that. Just as simple as that. Because all I'm doing is reading God's Word. That's all. Nothing else. Just reading to you what God has to say. Now notice, ninth verse, but they that will be rich, in other words, as it's what you desire, will fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have, what? Erred from the faith. Boy, pin that up. Erred from the faith. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But notice, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. And follow after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Ah, you see, that's what to seek after. Beloved, There are so many important principles set forward here that rich men have little time to think of God. Give a man riches and it takes all his time to either preserve it, to look at it, to save it, to spend it. The more he gets, the more time it takes. If you have any idea that these very rich men like well, what shall I say? Mr. Hunt? What's that fellow that just married a girl we know here? What has he got? A, is it a billion dollars? Poor fellow. I bet she doesn't have much time for anything else. But watching that billion dollars. Did you happen to see him when he had a conference and he was going to spend $400 million? I thought he'd jump all over the place. He lost his temper with the businessmen, knocked the cameras over. This is after he got married. Knocked the cameraman down, So leave me alone. And they said, but you're spending $400 million. You're in bed. So what? Get out of my way. Riches, beloved, nothing. If you're rich toward God, you have everything. May I say that? And to share, to share it all with the Lord Jesus. What a precious privilege we have to share it. And uh, you know, it's all individual, isn't it? It's all individual. Your giving is to God. Boy, when you get that in your heart, you're not giving to Franklin Avenue. Here I am, the preacher of Franklin Avenue. Do you know I've never once thought that I gave to Franklin Avenue or to the trustees or to the deacons or anybody else. I place my gift in the hands of Jesus Christ because I honor him in my giving. And I never say, Lord, I'm doing this for Franklin Avenue. I'm doing this for Jesus. You see? 